Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 6, Pines of the Valley. We'll be wandering alongside the noble mountain pine, the sturdy western juniper, the graceful mountain hemlock, and the resilient white bark pine, painting a tranquil landscape of enduring beauty and silent strength in the Yosemite region. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. The Two-Leaved Pine The Two-Leaved Pine, Pinus contorta, Var Mariana, above the silver fir zone, forms the bulk of the alpine forests, up to a height of from 8,000 to 9,500 feet above the sea, growing in beautiful order on moraines scarcely changed as yet by post-glacial weathering. Compared with the giants of the lower regions, this is a small tree, exceeding a height of 80 or 90 feet. The largest I ever measured was 90 feet high and a little over 6 feet in diameter. The average height of mature trees throughout the entire belt is probably not far from 50 or 60 feet with a diameter of two feet. It is a well-proportioned, rather handsome tree, with greyish-brown bark and crooked, much-divided branches, which cover the greater part of the trunk, but not so densely as to prevent it from being seen. The lower limbs, like those of most other conifers that grow in snowy regions, curve downward, gradually take a horizontal position about halfway up the trunk, then aspire more and more towards the summit. 
The short, rigid needles and fascicles of two are arranged in comparatively long, cylindrical tassels at the ends of the tough, up-curving branches. The cones are about two inches long, growing in clusters among the needles, without any striking effect, except while very young, when the flowers are of a vivid crimson colour, and the whole tree appears to be dotted with brilliant flowers. The staminate flowers are still more showy on account of their great abundance, often giving a reddish-yellow tinge to the whole mass of foliage and filling the air with pollen. No other pine on the range is so regularly planted as this one, covering moraines that extend along the sides of the high, rocky valleys for miles without interruption. The thin bark is streaked and sprinkled with resin, as though it has been showered upon the forest like rain. Therefore, this tree, more than any other, is subject to destruction by fire. During strong winds, extensive forests are destroyed, the flames leaping from tree to tree in continuous belts go surging and racing onward above the bending wood like prairie grass fires. During the calm season of the Indian summer, the fire creeps quietly along the ground, feeding on the needles and cones, arriving at the foot of a tree. The resiny bark is ignited, and the heated air ascends in a swift current, increasing in velocity and dragging the flames upwards. Then, the leaves catch, forming an immense column of fire, beautifully spired on the edges and tinted a rosy purple hue. It rushes aloft thirty or forty feet above the top of the tree, forming a grand spectacle, especially at night. It lasts, however, only a few seconds vanishing with magical rapidity, to be succeeded by others along the fire line at irregular intervals, tree after tree, up flashing and darting, leaving the trunks and branches scarcely scarred. The heat, however, is sufficient to kill the tree, and in a few years the bark shrivels and falls off. Forests miles in extent are thus killed and left standing, with the branches on, but peeled and rigid, appearing grey in the distance like misty clouds. Later, the branches drop off, leaving a forest of bleached spars. At length, the roots decay, and the forlorn grey trunks are blown down during some storm and piled one upon the other, encumbering the ground until, dry and seasoned, they are consumed by another fire and leave the ground ready for a fresh crop.
in sheltered lake hollows, on beds of alluvium. This pine varies so far from the common form that frequently it could be taken for a distinct species, growing in damp sods like grasses from forty to eighty feet high, bending altogether to the breeze and whirling in eddying gusts more lively than any other tree in the woods. I frequently found specimens fifty feet high, less than five inches in diameter. Being so slender, and at the same time clad with leafy boughs, it is often bent and weighed down to the ground when laden with soft snow, thus forming fine ornamental arches, making of them to last until the melting of the snow in spring. The Mountain Pine The mountain pine, Pinus monticola, is the noblest tree of the alpine zone, hardy and long-lived, towering grandly above its companions and becoming stronger and more imposing just where other species begin to crouch and disappear. At its best, it is usually about ninety feet high and five or six feet in diameter, though you may find specimens here and there considerably larger than this. It is as massive and suggestive of enduring strength as an oak. About two-thirds of the trunk is commonly free of limbs, but close, fringing tufts of spray occur nearly all the way down to the ground. On trees that occupy exposed situations near its upper limits, the bark is deep reddish-brown and rather deeply furrowed, the main furrows running nearly parallel to each other and connected on the old trees by conspicuous cross furrows. The cones are from four to eight inches long, smooth, slender, cylindrical, and somewhat curved. They grow in clusters of from three to six or even seven and become pendulous as they increase in weight. This species is nearly related to the sugar pine, and though not half so tall, it suggests its noble relative in the way that it extends its long branches in general habit. It is first met on the upper margin of the silver fir zone, singly, in what appears to be a chance situation without making much impression on the general forest. Continuing up through the forests of the two-leaved pine, it begins to show its distinguishing characteristic in the most marked way at an elevation of about 10,000 feet, extending its tough, rather slender arms in the frosty air, welcoming the storms and feeding on them and reaching sometimes to the grand old age of a thousand years.
The Western Juniper The juniper, or red cedar, Juniperus occidentalis, is preeminently a rock tree, occupying the baldest domes and pavements in the upper silver fir and alpine zones, at a height of from 7,000 to 9,500 feet. In such situations, rooted in narrow cracks or fissures, where there is scarcely a handful of soil, it is frequently over eight feet in diameter, and not much more in height. The tops of old trees are almost always dead, and large, stubborn-looking limbs push out horizontally, most of them broken and dead at the end but densely covered, and embedded here and there with tufts or mounds of grey-green, scale-like foliage. Some trees are mere storm-beaten stumps about as broad as long, decorated with a few leafy sprays, reminding one of the crumbling towers of old castles, scantily draped with ivy. Its homes on bare, barren dome and rigid top seem to have been chosen for safety against fire, for, on isolated mounds of sand and gravel, free from grass and bushes on which fire could feed, it is often found growing tall and unscathed to a height of forty to sixty feet, with scarce a trace of the rocky angularity and broken limbs, so characteristic a feature throughout the greater part of its range. It never makes anything like a forest, seldom even a grove. Usually, it stands out separate and independent, clinging by slight joints to the rocks, living chiefly on snow and thin air, and maintaining sound health on this diet for two thousand years or more. Every feature or every gesture it makes expresses steadfast, dogged endurance. The bark is of a bright cinnamon colour and is handsomely braided and reluctantly on thrifty trees, flaking off in thin, shining ribbons that are sometimes used by the locals for their tent matting. Its fine colour and picturesqueness are appreciated by artists, but to me the juniper seems a singularly strange and taciturn tree. I have spent many a day and night in its company and have always found it silent and rigid. It seems to be a survivor of some ancient race, wholly unacquainted with its neighbours. Its broad stumpiness, of course, makes wind waving or even shaking out of the question, but it is not this rocky rigidity that constitutes its silence. In calm, sunny days, the sugar pine preaches like an enthusiastic apostle without moving a leaf. On level rocks, 
the juniper dies standing and wastes insensibly out of existence like granite, the wind exerting about as little control over it, alive or dead, as it does over a glacier boulder. I have spent a good deal of time trying to determine the age of these wonderful trees, but as all of the very old ones are honeycombed with dry rot, I never was able to get a complete count of the largest. Some are undoubtedly more than 2,000 years old, for though on deep moraine soil they grow about as fast as some of the pines, on bare pavement and smoothly glaciated, overswept ridges in the dome region, they grow very slowly. One on the Star King Ridge, only two feet eleven inches in diameter, was one thousand one hundred and forty years old, forty years ago. Another on the same ridge, only one foot seven and a half inches in diameter, had reached the age of eight hundred and thirty-four years. The first fifteen inches from the bark of a medium-sized tree, six feet in diameter, on the North Tanaya pavement, had eight hundred and fifty-nine layers of wood. Beyond this, the count was stopped by dry rot and scars. The largest examined was thirty-three feet in girth or nearly ten feet in diameter, and, although I have failed to get anything like a complete count, I learned enough from this and many other specimens to convince me that most of the trees, eight or ten feet thick, standing on pavements, are more than twenty centuries old rather than less. Barring accidents, for all I can see, they would live forever. Even then, overthrown by avalanches, they refuse to lie at rest, lean stubbornly on their big branches, as if anxious to rise, and while a single root holds to the rock, put forth fresh leaves with a grim, never-say-die expression. The Mountain Hemlock as the juniper is the most stubborn and unshakable of trees in the Yosemite region, the mountain hemlock, Suga myrtaciana, is the most graceful and pliant and sensitive. Until it reaches a height of fifty or sixty feet, it is sumptuously clothed down to the ground with drooping branches which are divided again and again into delicate, waving sprays, grouped and arranged in ways that are indescribably beautiful and profusely adorned with small, brown cones. The flowers also are peculiarly beautiful and effective. The female dark, rich purple, the male blue, of so fine and pure a tone. 
What the best azure of the mountain sky seems to be condensed in them, though apparently the most delicate and feminine of all the mountain trees, it grows best where the snow lies deepest, at a height of from 9,000 to 9,500 feet, in hollows on the northern slopes of mountains and ridges. But under all circumstances, sheltered from heavy winds or in bleak exposure to them, well-fed or starved, even at its highest limit, 10,500 feet above the sea, on exposed ridge tops where it has to crouch and huddle close in low thickets, it still contrives to put forth its sprays and branches in forms of invincible beauty, while on moist, well-drained moraines, it displays a perfectly tropical luxuriance of foliage, flowers, and fruit. The snow of the first winter storm is frequently soft and lodges in dew dense leafy branches, weighing them down against the trunk, and the slender, drooping axis, bending lower and lower as the load increases, at length reaches the ground, forming an ornamental arch. Then, as storm succeeds storm, and snow is heaped on snow, the whole tree is at last buried, not again to see the light of day, or move leaf or limb, until set free by the spring thaw in June or July. Not only the young saplings are thus carefully covered and put to sleep in the whitest of white beds for five or six months of the year, but trees thirty feet high or more. From April to May, when the snow, by repeated thawing and freezing, is firmly compacted, you may ride over the prostrate groves without seeing a single branch or leaf of them. No other of our alpine conifers so finely veils its strength, poised in thin, white sunshine, clad with branches from head to foot. It towers in unassuming majesty, drooping as if unaffected with the aspiring tendencies of its race, loving the ground, conscious of heaven and joyously receptive of its blessings, reaching out its branches like sensitive tentacles, feeling the light and revealing it. The largest specimen I ever found was 19 feet 7 inches in circumference. It was growing on the edge of Lake Hollow, north of Mount Hoffman, at an elevation of 9,250 feet, above the level of the sea, and was probably about a hundred feet in height. Fine groves of mature trees, ninety to a hundred feet in height, are growing near the base of Mount Conness. It is widely distributed from near the south extremity of the High Sierra, northward along the Cascade Mountains of Oregon and Washington, 
and the coast ranges of British Columbia and Alaska, where it was first discovered in 1827. Its northernmost limit, so far as I've observed, is in the icy fjords of Prince William Sound in latitude 61 degrees, where it forms pure forests at the level of the sea, growing tall and majestic on the banks of glaciers. There, as in the Yosemite region, it is ineffably beautiful, the very loveliest of all the American conifers. The White Bark Pine The dwarf pine, or white bark pine, Pinus albicalis, forms the extreme edge of the timberline throughout nearly the whole extent of the range on both flanks. It is first met growing with the two-leaved pine on the upper margin of the alpine belt as an erect tree from 15 to 30 feet high and from 1 to 2 feet in diameter. Hence it goes straggling up the flanks of the summit peaks upon moraines or crumbling ledges wherever it can get a foothold to an elevation of from 10,000 to 12,000 feet where it dwarfs to a mass of crumpled branches covered with slender shoots each tipped with a short, close-packed leaf tassel. The bark is smooth and purplish, in some places almost white. The flowers are bright scarlet and rose purple, giving a very flowery appearance little looked for in such a tree. The cones are about three inches long, an inch and a half in diameter, growing in rigid clusters and are dark chocolate in colour while young, and bear beautiful pearly white seeds about the size of peas, most of which are eaten by chipmunks and the Clark's crows. Pines are commonly regarded as sky-loving trees that must necessarily aspire or die. This species forms a marked exemption, crouching and creeping in compliance with the most rigorous demands of climate, yet enduring bravely to a more advanced age than many of its lofty relatives in the sunlands far below it. Seen from a distance, it would never have been taken for a tree of any kind. For example, on Cathedral Peak, there is a scattered growth of this pine, creeping like mosses over the roof, nowhere giving hint of an ascending axis, while approaching quite near, it still appears matty and heathy, and one experiences no difficulty in walking over the top of it, yet it is seldom absolutely prostrate usually attaining a height of three or four feet with a main trunk, and with branches outspread above it, as if in ascending they had been checked by a ceiling, against which they had been compelled to spread horizontally. The winter snow is a sort of ceiling, lasting half the year, 
while the pressed surface is made yet smoother by violent winds, armed with cutting sand grains that bear down any shoots which offer to rise much above the general level, and that carve the dead trunks and branches in beautiful patterns. During stormy nights, I have often camped snugly beneath the interlacing arches of this little pine. The needles, which have accumulated for centuries, make fine beds, a fact well known to other mountaineers, such as deer and wild sheep, who pour out oval hollows and lie beneath the larger trees in safe and comfortable concealment. This lowly dwarf reaches a far greater age than would be guessed. A specimen that I examined, growing at an elevation of 10,700 feet, yet looked as though it might be plucked up by the roots, for it was only three and a half inches in diameter, and its topmost tassel reached hardly three feet above the ground. Cutting it half through, and counting the annual rings with the aid of a lens, I found its age to be no less than 255 years. Another specimen, about the same height, with a trunk six inches in diameter, I found to be 426 years old, 40 years ago, and one of its supple branchlets, hardly an eighth of an inch in diameter inside the bark was seventy-five years old, and so filled with oily balsam and seasoned by storms that I tied it in knots like a whip cord. The Nut Pine In going across the range from the Tulum River Soda Springs to Mono Lake, one makes the acquaintance of the curious little nut pine, Pinus Monophilia. It dots the eastern flank of the Sierra, to which it is mostly restricted in greyish, bush-like patches from the margin of the sage plains to an elevation of from 7,000 to 8,000 feet. A more contented, fruitful, and unaspiring conifer could not be conceived. All the species we have been sketching make departures more or less distant from the typical spire form, but none goes so far as this. Without any apparent cause, it keeps near to the ground, throwing out crooked, divergent branches, like an orchard tree, and seldom pushes a single shoot higher than fifteen or twenty feet above the ground. The average thickness of the trunk is, perhaps, about ten or twelve inches. The leaves are mostly undivided, like round owls, instead of being separated, like those of other pines, into two and three and five. The cones are green while growing, and are usually found over all the trees, forming quite a marked feature as seen against the bluish-grey foliage. They are quite small, only about two inches in length, 
and seem to have but little space for seeds. But when we come to open them, we find that about half the entire bulk of the cone is made up of sweet, nutritious nuts, nearly as large as hazelnuts. This is undoubtedly the most important food tree on the Sierra and furnishes the Mona, Carson and Walker River residents with more and better nuts than all the other species taken together. Being so low, the cones are readily beaten off with poles and the nuts procured by roasting them until the scales open. In bountiful seasons, a single person may gather thirty or forty bushels. <laughs>